Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Thanks for joining us. We are here with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, good to see you once again. Always good to see you, Brian. Good to be with the audience here to talk with people who are serious about wanting to know more about our Constitution, the founding document of our country. Well, it seems like we live in a time where understanding that document better could help us make a lot of sense out of some of the confusion around us. And I I know today you came prepared to talk about some of the constitutional issues that we're facing. Yes, and there's a number of things that I thought we ought to address today. And first is there are some attacks upon our Supreme Court, and I'm not against attacking the Supreme Court. Sometimes they deserve attack, but talk about what's going on there. And I thought we might do that in the first segment. And then in the second segment, I thought we would talk about a Supreme Court decision just a few weeks ago that denied relief, just a few days ago, I should say, that denied relief to people in the state of New York and a couple of weeks earlier, people in Maine that do not want to have to go through these vaccine mandates. In the third segment, we'll focus on a case that we have just filed on behalf of the Foundation for Moral Law, an amicus brief filed in support of Navy SEALs and Navy divers and various other Navy personnel who are objecting to the Biden mandate that they be vaccinated and have their careers in jeopardy as a result. And then the last is another case that I'm starting to do a amicus or friend of the court brief on. And that's going to involve the contract clause. And we'll see how that has an application to what's going on with some of these eviction moratoriums that the federal government has instituted in some areas and that the state of California or Los Angeles has instituted and how the Constitution is implicated in all of these things. But let's start out by looking at our Supreme Court. And first of all, the Constitution, as we know, has set out three branches of government. Each of those branches has a distinctive function. And these roles of government, we can find all the way back in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah says, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. And there, in that first part, we see the three functions of government combined. Our judge, the judicial, our lawgiver, the legislative, our king, the executive, all three of these functions in the Lord. But we have come to the view that, unlike the Lord, who is utterly holy and utterly uncorruptible, to entrust absolute power, combining all of these powers into one person or one agency or branch of government simply invites them to become corrupt, to become tyrannical, to usurp power. And that being the case, we try to separate them into these legislative, executive, and judicial branches. And of these, the founders really intended that the legislative branch would be supreme. It would have the greatest power. 
then the executive and the, the least dangerous branch, as Hamilton put it, would be the judiciary. Hamilton said the legislature exercises will. They set out what the policy of the nation is going to be. The executive exercises force. He sets out or carries out the will of the legislature, although now it seems like he expresses the will and the legislature rubber stamps it. And the court only exercises judgment. That is, they simply interpret the laws that the legislature has enacted. Well, it has moved to the point where the courts have usurped more and more power as they assume the right to define what the words of the Constitution actually mean and give them new meanings. And as a result, with the living Constitution, we find that the court has more and more power, but nevertheless, many in the legislature are concerned because it seems like we have a court today that wants to go back to interpreting the Constitution as it was written and as the framers intended. And we have a legislature and an executive branch that their desire seems to have been in recent years to be able to pass whatever they want, do whatever they want, whether it coincides with the Constitution or not, and just rely on the court to reinterpret the Constitution to allow whatever they want to do. Now we've got a court that seems opposed to strike down abortion laws and other things like this. And some in the legislative and executive branch are scared about this. They've been able to run roughshod over the Constitution, and now they may not be able to do so. So Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, has just come up with a proposal. Others have advanced this before, but she would like to add three new Democrat, or I should say three new liberal justices to the Supreme Court. Now, we understand the Constitution itself does not say how many justices will serve on the court. Congress sets the number of justices. And once Congress sets the number of justices, then the president can nominate justices to fill any vacancies, and then Congress, that is the Senate, by a majority vote, can advise and consent in the nominations that the president has proposed. president can't just propose a bunch of new justices. Congress has to first of all authorize them. But then he can nominate justices to fill those positions. And if the Congress, the Senate, will will confirm them, then they go on the court. Now, that being the case, the proposal to add new justices to the court is not unconstitutional. They can do that. But it doesn't seem likely that it's going to happen. A number of Democrats in the Senate have said that they would oppose this measure. You know, we have 50 Republicans, and hopefully they will... All, stand all 50 against any attempt to expand the court. And then we have Senator Manchin of West Virginia and Senator King of Maine and several others who have, Tester of Montana, several others, who have expressed some opposition to this themselves. And that being the case, it would seem like 
Elizabeth Warren's proposal to expand the court is probably dead in the water. Nevertheless, she's advancing it, and probably her hope is that by advancing it, she may scare the court into thinking we better not overrule Roe versus Wade or they're going to put new justices on the court. Well, I hope they will stand firm and do what is right regardless. But I thought Senator Angus King, who is an independent, although he caucuses with the Democrats, is from Maine, I thought what he said was very appropriate. He said, well, first, the, the Democrats had three liberal justices to the court. Then when the Republicans take over, they balance it by expanding the court and putting on four conservatives. And eventually, we're going to have a court that is composed of 100 unelected justices, and they'll be running the country. And I think his point is very, very well taken. But as he asks, where is this going to lead? Well, where it's going to lead is not good. But anyway, that's constitutional, but it's not a good idea. And I thought the one who probably said it best was Joe Biden. Back when Joe Biden was in the Senate, he said concerning a proposal to expand the number of justices in the court, it is a boneheaded idea. And he was right then. And even though he may have changed his mind on it today, what he said then is very much true. It is still a boneheaded idea, but probably not nearly as boneheaded as another proposal that liberals in Congress have come up with, and that is limiting the terms of justices on the court. This, in my opinion, is blatantly unconstitutional. First of all, the Constitution says they will hold offices, hold their offices during good behavior. This would take a constitutional amendment. The proposal is that we simply limit them to 18-year terms, then they'd still be justices, but we could move them to a different circuit where take them off the Supreme Court and put them in a federal district judge position somewhere and so on. No, it says they will hold their offices, the office to which they were nominated and confirmed during good behavior. This proposal is blatantly unconstitutional, and only a constitutional amendment would change that. Both of these, though, are bad ideas. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Again, we're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Uh, Colonel, let's pick up right where you left off as we went to break. Well, we're going to move on from there to talk about a couple of the things that the courts are doing right now. First of these is a Supreme Court decision that came down earlier this week. Case of Dr. A versus Kathy Hochul, who is the new governor of New York. And anyway, this concerns a medical doctor and several others who are challenging the New York governor's vaccination mandates. There was an article about this that appeared on the Internet just recently. Gorsuch's crusade against vaccine mandates could topple a pillar of public health and begins by saying that the good news from 
their standpoint, it does not appear that a majority of the Supreme Court is to prepare to find that religious liberty claims require an exemption to COVID vaccine mandates everywhere and anywhere. And that's in light of the fact that the Supreme Court just ruled six to three that they would not grant an emergency injunction prohibiting the governor of New York from imposing a vaccine mandate, even though her vaccine mandate allowed for medical exemptions, but did not allow for any religious exemptions. But there was a dissent that was written by Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Alito joined in the dissent. Justice Thomas also did not join specifically in that dissent, but simply said that he agreed with them and did not agree with the majority in refusing to grant the injunction. But we need to understand that when the court refuses to grant an emergency injunction, that's not the same thing as saying we agree that the law that we're not going to enjoin here, we agree that that law is correct. Recall that we had three cases last year in which the United States Supreme Court ruled in favor of churches and their right to meet, one of them striking down a executive order by Governor Cuomo of New York, in which he basically prohibited these churches from meeting, and the other two in California, similarly striking down mandates by Governor Newsom in California, prohibiting churches from meeting. Now, I mention those because the previous year, the Supreme Court had on several occasions refused to grant emergency injunctions in favor of the court, or rather in favor of the churches. But when it came to finally hearing the case on the merits, they ruled in favor of the churches. The fact that the court has refused to grant an injunction here does not mean that they're ultimately going to be ruling in favor of the mandates. Now, particularly, I would argue that in New York, the mandate that Governor Hochul in New York, I may be mispronouncing her name, and if so, I apologize, that the governor's mandate there, I think, is terrible in many respects. In fact, you look to a difference between her and Governor Cuomo, her, pre her predecessor. Governor Cuomo had made what many would say was an utterly shocking statement one time when he said concerning the way they had succeeded in getting the COVID under control there, which they didn't really succeed in doing, but he said, God didn't do that, we didn't, claiming credit for himself and his people for what God had actually done. Now, I'm not saying that God ultimately struck him down because of this, but when we see what happened to him not very long after having said that, to say that that was God working behind the scenes, it's entirely possible. But the former lieutenant governor, who is now the governor, has come out with a statement of her own on this, why she's willing to grant medical exemptions from vaccination, but she is not willing to grant religious exemptions. But her reasons are very different 
but they are just as dangerous, and in some ways, they're a little scarier. The new governor, according to the dissenting opinion here by Justice Gorsuch, he says the new governor announced that the decision to eliminate the exemption, meaning the religious exemption, was intentional and justified because no organized religion sought it, and individuals who did were not listening to God and what God wants. Now that is a shocking statement in which she thinks that she, rather than individuals, speak for God. And Governor, or rather, Justice Gorsuch goes on to quote her, speaking to an audience here, where she says, how can you believe that God would give a vaccine that would cause you harm? That is not truth. Those are just lies out there on social media. And one of the things that she noted was that in every single, as she says, no major religious denomination has endorsed religious exemptions to vaccination. And therefore, there can't be any religious objection to it, because no major denomination is requested. She seems to be speaking for the religious consciences of everybody in her state. And Gorsuch calls her to task on this, and does so very effectively, when he points out that the free exercise clause protects not only the right to hold unpopular religious beliefs, inwardly and secretly, It protects the right to live out those beliefs publicly in the performance or abstention from physical acts. And he goes on to cite the case of Thomas versus Review Board, where he says that religious beliefs need not be acceptable, logical, consistent, or comprehensible to others in order to merit constitutional protection. Nor are they limited, he says, to Beliefs which are shared by all of the members of a religious sect. Well, as I say, I think Governor Hochul's comments here, I think, really did the death knell in the ultimate sense for her order. And ultimately, when the court rules on this, I think the court is going to rule that when she refuses to accept religious mandates, that she is religious exemptions to the mandates, that she is acting unconstitutionally, and I think ultimately the court is going to overrule her. Meanwhile, we've seen other federal courts rule concerning Governor Senator Biden's, or I'm really getting mixed up today, President Biden's mandates, the employer mandates. The Fifth Circuit has struck this mandate down, And I love the language that they used. President Biden had said in an address to the nation when he said that he was going to institute these mandates, he said, our patience is wearing thin. Well, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said that that doesn't matter. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said that the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, has only authority that is granted to it by Congress Congress has not granted them any authority to institute vaccination mandates. Therefore, they do not have any such authority. The president may not add to OSHA's authority, even if his patience is wearing thin. Anyway, that's the ruling of the Fifth Circuit. 
we're still waiting for rulings from several other circuits. But it appears there's good reason to think that the court ultimately is going to strike down these mandates because the president does not have a police power. The state has more police power than the president has. And so it seems that what we're likely to win at the federal level, hopefully at the state level as well. But now after the break, we're going to look to another issue. And this issue is going to concern what about our our United States military? Listening to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I'm actually encouraged to hear some good news coming out of the courts. Sometimes I feel like it's been a while. Well, there is a mixture of good news and bad news. As I say, much as I love Justice Gorsuch's dissenting opinion, he is speaking for two justices, and we had six that didn't go along with him on that. But one of the things that Justice Barrett said was that she wanted to wait and have the case fully tried on its merits before she rules on this. And I think that is encouraging. In other words, I don't think that we should write off Justice Barrett or Justice Kavanaugh or even Chief Justice Roberts on these issues. When it ultimately comes down to the merits, I think they may rule in our favor. But something else probably needs to be explained here, and that's that when we're looking at a mandate with a state, a state like New York or Maine or California, there we're dealing with what we call the state's police power, which is a power to rule and legislate for the health, safety, and well-being of the people of the state. That power is subject to certain limitations like free speech, free press, and freedom of religion, and things like that. But there is that general what we call police power. Now, at the federal level, there is no police power. And so if Biden is going to make a ruling like that, he's going to have to base it on something like the general welfare clause or the commerce clause or something like that. And anyway, that's going to be harder to do. And that's why we've had more clear victories on those who are challenging President Biden's mandates than we do for the challenges to the mandates of various state governors. But we'll see what happens there. But in the meantime, we've got something else going on here, and that concerns the military. Now, the military is in a little different position than the mandates concerning employers, because when we're dealing with the military, obviously we're dealing with an agency that is directly under the president, and with the exception of the Coast Guard, under the Department of Defense. And anyway, so there, the power of the federal government to institute rules that affect the military may be stronger than they would be for private employers. But we have had mandates that have been issued in the various branches of the military that have required their members to get the vaccinations and In the 13 years that I have been with the Foundation for Moral Law, I have gotten more calls and more requests for assistance on this issue about 
COVID vaccinations than on any other issue that we faced in the last 13 years. And in the last six months or so, the majority of those have been coming from military personnel. Well, there was a lawsuit that was filed some time ago, and there's going to be a hearing on this lawsuit in a federal district court in the Northern District of Texas this coming Monday, Monday the 20th of November, uh, 20th of December. And anyway, this lawsuit has been brought by First Liberty. This is a very fine constitutionalist organization out of Texas. And they brought this action on behalf of a group of Navy SEALs, Navy divers, and various other Navy personnel. And it's a lawsuit that has been brought against President Biden challenging his mandates. And so, at the Foundation for Moral Law, we have filed an amicus or friend of the court brief in support of these Navy SEALs as they challenge this mandate. And part of the reason that we brought this is that we too have an interest in this. We're not a party to this case, but we have a great deal of interest that I myself am a retired Air Force judge advocate, served 23 years as an Air Force attorney. And the founder of our foundation, Judge Moore, is a graduate of West Point and was a Vietnam veteran. And among the people that have come to us have been midshipmen at the Merchant Marine Academy and cadets at West Point, an instructor at the Naval Academy, and personnel who are in the Air Force Reserve and guardsmen. One guardsman, I won't identify what state he was with, but one guardsman who, he is a warrant officer and a Huey pilot who has served 19 years with an unblemished record, and now he's being threatened with discharge if he doesn't agree. Well, in that case, it was concerning the face mask, but it's eventually going to lead to the vaccination issue as well. And from other state guard units as well, these issues are coming up, reservists and the like. And anyway, so we decided to intervene in this case and to kind of give them our two cents worth as to why we think that these naval personnel are entitled to a First Amendment defense. Now, the first thing we noted in our brief was that the Constitution clearly applies to military personnel. You know, there was an attitude some time ago that when you enter the military, you give up all your constitutional rights. The courts have never taken that position. In fact, in Greer versus Spock, the court said the military enclave is kept free of partisan influence, but individual servicemen are not isolated from participation as citizens in our democratic process. In Chapel versus Wallace, the Supreme Court said in 1983, our citizens in uniform may not be stripped of basic rights simply because they adopt their civilian clothes. And numerous other rulings of the Supreme Court and other federal courts to that effect. Not only that, but at a time when military free exercise of religion rights and free speech rights were being challenged 
on many occasions. On the 4th of May of 2017, President Trump issued an executive order, Executive Order 13798, promoting free speech and religious liberty. And this executive order has, as far as I can tell, not been repealed, so it is still in effect. But his order says it shall be the policy of the executive branch to vigorously enforce federal law's robust protections for religious freedom. The founders envisioned a nation in which religious voices and views were integral to a vibrant public square and in which a religious people and institutions were free to practice their faith without fear of discrimination or retaliation by the federal government. And section two, all executive departments and agencies, and that has to include the Department of Defense, shall, to the greatest extent practicable and to the extent permitted by law, respect, protect, and the freedom of persons and organizations to engage in religious and political speech. And we know it also that in the case of Ballard versus United States, that in this case, the Supreme Court said that religious beliefs to be protected by law don't have to be beliefs that we might personally agree with. This case involved a man who was convicted of mail fraud because he claimed that he was in touch with angels and that if you pay him a certain amount of money, he would communicate with angels on your behalf. But the Supreme Court overturned his conviction, saying courts and government agencies have no business judging the truth or falsity of people's religious claims. And the court said, men may believe what they cannot prove. They may not be put to the proof of their religious doctrines or beliefs. Religious experiences, which are as real as life to some, may be incomprehensible to others. Yet the fact that they may be beyond the ken of mere mortals does not mean they can be made suspect before the law. And in another case, Thomas versus Review Board, the Supreme Court simply said that religious beliefs do not have to be those that are part of the official doctrine of a church or shared by all members of a church in order to merit First Amendment protection. As the court said, courts are not arbiters of scriptural interpretation. Anyway, so we are taking the position that military personnel are entitled to the protection of their religious beliefs and that if they are going to be given medical exemptions, they must be given religious exemptions as well. And in fact, the very fact that the military has granted medical exemptions demonstrates that they can't really claim that military necessity requires that they deny all exemptions. If they can grant medical exemptions, they can grant religious exemptions as well. And Governor Hochul of New York, I hope you're listening to that. Anyway, so we're going to go to another case in just a little bit, but let's take a break. This is Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
All right, it's our final segment, Colonel. Let's uh, let's finish up uh, where we left off in the last segment, and I understand you've got a little bit more to go on to as well. There's so much more that I would like to say in regard to the case here involving these Navy SEALs. I just ask our listeners to pray for them and pray for the judge that is hearing this case, that we read in the scriptures that the heart of the king and the word there that is used in the book of Proverbs to mean king can also mean judge. So we'll translate this, the heart of the judge is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. In the conclusion to the brief that we have filed with this court, we wrote, with great discipline and at great sacrifice, plaintiff nails Navy SEALs, as well as the other Navy plaintiffs herein, have pledged their lives to the defense of their country. And now the leadership of their country appears to be making war upon them, threatening their livelihoods, their careers, and their reputations, simply for obeying God in a land dedicated to religious liberty. In their defense, they place their trust in the Constitution they have taken an oath to support and defend, and the courts who have the duty of enforcing the Constitution. We pray the courts will not fail them in their hour of need. And I'd ask our listeners to keep these Navy SEALs in prayer and keep the judge in prayer as this case comes up for a hearing on Monday, the 20th of of December. But I'd like to move on now to another issue here. With the COVID issues going on, with the widespread unemployment that resulted at first from COVID and now we're seeing people that just seems like anywhere you go, businesses can't find employees, people wanting to work and so on. I know that I have a sister-in-law in Idaho. Her husband has a furniture shop. He has a sign in front of his furniture shop saying, 20 per hour will train. He can't get people to work. And if you pay people to stay home, it's no wonder. But Partly as a result of this, some people have been unable to pay their rent, apparently. And as a result, we've had a federal mandate, a mandate that was a moratorium forbidding evictions for people who don't pay their rent. And in the state of California, we have the city of Los Angeles and Los Angeles County imposing a mandate that was much stricter than the federal mandate. And in this mandate, it says that the employer, the landlord may not evict somebody for not paying their rent. And the person that doesn't pay his rent doesn't even have to demonstrate that he's unable to pay his rent. That doesn't matter. Nor can the landlord evict on the ground that he's violated a portion of the lease, like, for example, keeping the premises dirty or having pets on the premises if the lease prohibited that. The tenant can be operating the premises in total violation of the terms of the lease, and the landlord still cannot evict. But anyway, so a group of landlords there a group called the Apartment Association of Los Angeles County 
doing business as the Apartment Association of Greater Los Angeles, has challenged the city of Los Angeles, filed a lawsuit, and they are petitioning for a writ of certiorari before the United States Supreme Court, saying that this is unconstitutional. Well, what part of the Constitution does it violate? Well, we've talked about this before, but of course we passed over this fairly quickly at the time. But now we see how some of these maybe rather obscure provisions of the Constitution are really very important. In Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution, we read, No state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. Now, let's think about this for a moment. We talk about liberty of contract, and we see liberty of contract being guaranteed in two sections of the Constitution. One, the guarantee of liberty that we see in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, the right to make a contract, the right, my right, to decide that I'm going to work for you and your right as the employer to decide that you're going to employ me, and so we enter into a contract for a certain amount of money, a certain number of hours, and so on. Or my right as a tenant to decide that I'm willing to pay you a certain amount of money per month in return for living in your apartment, and you as the landlord agreeing to let me live there in return for my paying the rent and agreeing to abide by the terms of the lease. That lease is a contract. Now, not only do we have the liberty to enter into a contract or not enter into that contract, if the landlord insists on terms, well, I'm going to charge you $1,200 a month for this one-bedroom apartment, and I say nothing doing, I'm going to go somewhere else, and if I can't find a better deal in an apartment, I may buy a house instead or move in with my parents or something like that. But liberty of contract. But then we have the provision of Article 1, Section 10 called the obligation of contracts or impairment of contracts clause. And that's that once I have entered into a contract, I have the right to go to court to enforce that contract. And if I don't have that right to go to court to enforce my contract, really my contract isn't much good. I mean, anybody can just walk away from a contract unless I can go to court and enforce it. And so we have this clause, no state may impair the obligation of contracts. People have a right to sue in court, to have their contracts enforced, and the state may not impair it. That's what is really going on here in Los Angeles. The state has stepped in and said, you may not enforce your contract. Landlords, yes, it's true, you had a contract with the tenant in which you agreed you'd make that apartment available, in which the tenant agreed he'd pay you this this month's rent per month, but, but you may not enforce that. We're not going to allow you to go to the court and evict that person for not paying his rent. Well, first of all, I'm going to say that this clause, the impairment of contracts clause, was considered to be an absolute in the Constitution as the contract, the Constitution was originally written. Rufus King of Massachusetts, who was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, proposed this clause, and he noted that Congress had just passed 
the Northwest Ordinance. And in the Northwest Ordinance, they had said, in the just preservation of rights and property, it is understood and declared that no law ought ever to be made or have force in the said territory that shall in any manner whatever interfere with or affect private contracts or engagements bona fide and without fraud previously formed. In other words, he based the contract's clause upon a very strict provision of the Northwest Ordinance. To show how strong they wanted this, they didn't put any exceptions into it. Not only that, but in Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, there we have prohibitions on the states where it'll say no state may, without the consent of Congress, do various things. But here in Section 10, it simply says no state may do this under any circumstances. So they intended the Contracts Clause to be an absolute prohibition. And that's the way it was applied up until 1934. Now, 1934, we have a case of Blaisdell versus Home Mortgage and Loan Association, in which, in the Depression, Minnesota had adopted what was called the Minnesota Mortgage Moratorium Act. Many people were going to lose their homes and have their mortgages foreclosed upon because they couldn't pay the mortgage. And anyway, so Minnesota passed a law that put a moratorium on foreclosures. Now, they said in the law, because this is going to be temporary, and you can charge rent in the meantime, so you'll be getting a rent payment. But also, ultimately, the homeowner is going to have to pay you the full mortgage. That's very different from the eviction notice that we see here, where with the eviction moratorium, a tenant just doesn't have to pay anything at all for a year or so and then just walk out and leave the landlord stuck with the whole bill. Now, what I'm going to just close by saying is, let's suppose we did this the other way around. Let's say because things were rough on landlords, we had an acceleration act that says you have to pay double rent. Obviously, that would be an outrage. But that would be no more a violation of the contracts clause than the Los Angeles law is. And we are certainly hoping that the court will grant cert on this and grant relief to these landlords.